With all the issues being discussed in government today, it's easy to get distracted by the politics of everything. But behind the scenes, VMware's cybersecurity software is working overtime to ensure our virtual environments are safe and secure. DH Technologies and VMware are here to offer you a free demo of their virtualization software. Go to dhtech.com demo to find out how to protect your organization today. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Intercepted, Democracy Now!, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, and On the Media. Bush's wars relied on what we now call alternative facts. That's how the Iraq War was sold. That was how the Patriot Act was passed. That was how these endless wars were justified over and over and over. Bush and Dick Cheney, yep, yeah, they were they were a bit more sophisticated than Trump and Bannon and, you know, their team appear to be. But we can already see that same machinery that brought us the Iraq war playing out with Trump and his team. It's one thing to lie in all caps on Twitter. It's another to manipulate intelligence. I'm joined now by two people who know a lot about this. They both worked on sensitive operations within the U.S. intelligence community under George W. Bush's administration. Clint Watts was a U.S. Army infantry officer who was then recruited after 9-11 to become an FBI special agent on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Uh, Watts also served as the executive director of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Nada Bacos was a career CIA analyst. She found herself actually working on the program to find a connection between Saddam Hussein and al-Qaeda. And she was working on that as a result of pressure from the Bush White House, particularly Dick Cheney, on the CIA. That connection, of course, was never substantiated. I want to welcome both you, Clint Watts, and you, Nada Bacos, to Intercepted. Clint Watts, let's begin with you. What's your read on Trump's approach to the CIA, the military, and intelligence operations in general? The Trump strategy is to build allegiance by fawning on law enforcement and the military, the way he's done so far, to try and bring them in so that they're loyal and adherent to him in ways that the Obama administration failed. And then at the same point, to drive a wedge between the intelligence community and much of the military and law enforcement, which was very typical of General Flynn, you know, the first national security advisor. He butted heads straight on with the CIA and even other parts of the Defense Department, uh, parts of law enforcement community. So I think the initial strategy was to defang the intel community, then sort of say, okay, you know, I'll listen to you and, you know, I'll come to you a little bit and then to continue to drive that wedge and then pump up the military and law enforcement. And it's backfired, I think, to a certain degree. And I, I think at a higher level, what the public doesn't see is there are competing strains inside each of these organizations. So uh, in the Department of Defense, there are those that are very excited about a Trump administration because they feel they've been, you know, a little bit underhanded by the Obama administration. I think within the intel community, uh, it's much more balanced, uh, and they're not as enthusiastic about it because the president doesn't accept information that's against his views. It literally, is his presidential daily brief, he doesn't take. He doesn't take the intel briefings. He only wants the intelligence that fits a certain filter. For anyone that's a, a bona fide intelligence expert, those are the worst things that you ever want to hear. It's also an opportunity, though. I think the smarter people in the intelligence community – are going to treat him like a dictator. And, and what do you do with a dictator? You play to his ego. 
So they will end up almost influencing the president like a foreign adversary, I think, that if they want to convince him of what they believe the truth or a balanced assessment for America is, they're going to end up uh, treating him like a Gaddafi or a Putin or somebody that they want to appeal to. And they're literally going to have to make their assessments with the information behind it come to terms with the president's worldview, which is very frightening because it, it really sets up a lot of blind spots as well. Uh, there's a lot of discussion now in the media of, uh, of you know, what's called the deep state and also this um, notion that the CIA and certain sectors of the FBI are trying to undermine the legitimacy of Donald Trump's presidency. Then on the other side, uh, saying that the uh, CIA and other agencies may not actually be providing President Trump with uh, the, the full picture on an intelligence level because they don't trust him. What, what do you say to that? I think what will be the tell about this division inside these organizations is when you see words of alternative intelligence process or alternative analysis process, which I, I imagine will happen. If you remember back during- what, the, is that, what does that mean? If you remember back during the Bush administration when it was time to build the case for war in Iraq, there was certain segments in the Department of Defense that were coming up with their own independent assessments of the justifications to go to war in Iraq. And those oftentimes competed and were contrarian to what you got out of the intelligence community. So if this administration really wants to push a certain agenda, and we've already seen this now with the DHS intel assessment around the ban in these countries, they produced a report that didn't match up with this policy that they're pushing. So now you see the administration say, well, I'm not going to listen to it. We're still going to push it forward. Maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and do analysis. What I would expect them to do is start to put together alternative teams out of the White House that are going to provide another com competitive look at these questions. And if we see that, especially in the Department of Defense or run directly out of the National Security Council, I would have great concern. Um, that to me would, would signal I don't trust my intel agencies and the intel I want is to support my actions is the following, go find it. And and that happened, if you remember back during the Bush administration, where there was this alternative intelligence process, which was coming out sideways against the intel community. So that's very nerve wracking to me. Well, and, and, and just to provide people the historical context for that, you had Stephen Cambone, who was one of Rumsfeld's top deputies, who ran what they called the Office of Special Plans. And Cambone and, and other uh, of uh, minions or, or representatives of Rumsfeld were doing what's called stovepiping. They were, they were taking raw bits of intelligence and, uh, and cherry picking them to support a conclusion rather than letting the facts lead to a conclusion. And Nada, you uh, you served at uh, during this uh, time at the CIA where you had this parallel operation being run out of the Pentagon uh, while the CIA was tasked with determining, are these things true? Are they not? What does the evidence look like? And then you had Cambone and, and, and others running around cherry picking intelligence and providing it uh, directly to the vice president. Could we see something like that replay under Trump, Nada? So under the Office of Special Plans, as you mentioned, Doug Fife was involved, Paul Wolfowitz was involved. Their findings were the opposite of basically what we were finding at the time. I was on the team charged with figuring out whether or not Iraq had anything to do with 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. Now, that question did not come up organically through the intelligence we were collected. That question came up from the administration. We weren't seeing indicators. We wouldn't have formed a team otherwise to evaluate this information. So that in and of itself was the beginning of, of a backwards, you know, cart before the horse. 
we came to our conclusion. We delivered it to the White House, to Congress. Uh, the DOD did have a very different opinion on how they um, characterize relationships between Saddam and other terrorist organizations. They weighed false information. They also took raw reports and cherry-picked those from sources that we didn't deem reliable and gave those to the president. It's very clear that politicizing intelligence and cherry-picking information that you think is going to support your bottom line, you know, it led to war in this instance. Misinformation. I, I, misinformation. Brainwash education. Well, we turn now uh, to another issue. Uh, is the Trump administration attempting to erase history? On Friday, congressional officials confirmed the administration has begun returning to Congress copies of the Senate's explosive 2014 report on CIA torture. The move raises concerns that copies of the classified report will now be buried in a Senate vaults or even destroyed, and along with it, lessons from one of the darkest chapters in America's history. Under the Obama administration, the 6,770-page landmark investigative Senate report was initially sent to federal agencies in the hope it would eventually be made public. Now the reports will be returned to the Republican-controlled Senate. Documents held by Congress are not subjected to laws requiring government records to eventually be made public. On Friday, the American Civil Liberties Union said in a statement, quote, it would be a travesty for agencies to return the CIA torture report instead of reading and learning from it. As senators intended, this critically important investigation should have been made public. Democrats are expressing fear that the Trump administration intends to erase electronic copies and destroy hard copies of the report. In a statement, Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon accused the Trump administration of seeking to, quote, pave the way for the kind of falsehoods used to justify an illegal and dangerous torture program, unquote. Throughout the campaign and since taking office, President Trump has voiced his support for torture. This is ABC's David Muir questioning Trump about torture in January. Mr. President, you told me during one of the debates that you would bring back waterboarding yeah. and a hell of a lot worse. I would words. do what I would do. I want to keep our country safe. I want to keep our country safe. What does that when mean? When they're shooting, when they're chopping off the heads of our people and other people, when they're chopping off the heads of people because they happen to be a Christian in the Middle East, when ISIS is doing things that nobody has ever heard of since medieval times, would I feel strongly about waterboarding? As far as I'm concerned, we have to fight fire with fire. I have spoken as recently as 24 hours ago, with people at the highest level of intelligence, and I asked them the question, does it work? Does torture work? And the answer was yes, absolutely. So that was President Trump speaking to ABC's David Muir in January. The Freedom of the Press Foundation is now calling for whistleblowers within the Trump administration to contact the press before the Senate torture report is potentially lost forever. The group tweeted, quote, if you work for the Trump administration and your conscience compels you to blow the whistle, you can use Secure Drop 
to contact the press. Well, for more, we're joined, uh, continuing to be joined by Shana Cadidal, the senior managing editor, uh, senior managing attorney at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Um, CCR represents two men named as former CIA prisoners in the executive summary of the Senate torture report that was released in 2014. Majid Khan and Gulid Hassan Duran are both currently held at Guantanamo. So, Shana, talk about the significance of what the Trump administration is doing with this report. Sure. Well, it's, it's certainly highly significant to um, uh, to individual cases, right? Um, it's useful to go back a little bit, I guess, remind ourselves what has been released and, and what we might still be waiting on, right? So, in December 2014, after many years of struggle with the Obama administration over uh, essentially redaction and classification review of the, the parts of the, of the report, um, they release um, the 525-page executive summary, right, which which shows, among other things, um, that techniques that were applied were much worse than what was revealed in those torture memos um, under the Bush administration, right, that it was applied against a lot more people um, than was previously discussed, and, and, and that group of people included at least 26 people um, who uh, were wrongly um, suspected of involvement in terrorism, basically, right, against people who were, quote-unquote, innocent, right? Um, uh, that it um, that the techniques um, exceeded the legal authorization um, that was spelled out in those memos, and that finally, um, uh, really nothing productive um, came out of uh, the torture and, and detention program. Right, um, that there wasn't actionable intelligence that came out of it, um, and that there wasn't cooperation induced among detainees. Right, and that bottom line is, I think, the most important thing that probably remains to be reinforced by the the six thousand plus pages that haven't been released, that haven't been. Um, redacted into unclassified form and released publicly, right? Um, we only know this because of what Senator Feinstein has said, but she says um, uh, that the remaining portion of the report um, that Senator Burr is trying to bury, um, that the agencies are returning, um, uh, contains a great deal more detail about the ineffectiveness of the program, how it didn't produce useful intelligence like the CIA claimed, um, and it responds in great detail to the CIA's own defense. Um, of the program. Then on top of that, we also know from Feinstein's cover letter to the executive summary that there are detailed um, uh, chapters essentially on all of the 119 detainees. Um, so this might be very useful in their individual cases, certainly might be useful in the sentencing proceeding of our client Majid Khan, who cut a plea and cooperate agreement, and potentially in the habeas corpus um, uh, case uh, arguing for his freedom um, for Galid um, Hassan Duran, our other client in the CIA program. Well, Burr is a longtime critic of the report, uh, which he's described as disreputable and overly critical of the CIA and the Bush, uh, George W. Bush administration. At one point, he called the report nothing more than, quote, a footnote in history. So could you explain why you think the Republicans are so averse uh, uh, to releasing this report and, and what, you know, we can speculate is in the report that might be particularly critical uh, of them? Right. It's a million dollar question, right? I mean, this is a, you know, 6,000 plus page footnote. It was the product of five years of intensive labor by Senate staffers. The Senate Intelligence Committee voted almost unanimously to conduct the inquiry, 14 to 1, um, uh, in 2005 when the, when the whole thing got started, right? So it's really mysterious, um, uh, you know, why they, they want to bury it. And I think the only clue that we really have to it is what Feinstein has said about what's in there, which is um, precisely that it undercuts um, uh, the CIA's argument um, uh, that the program was somehow 
somehow effective in producing intelligence, in uh, disrupting active terrorist threats, in helping find Osama bin Laden. Um, uh, and, you know, obviously with um, uh, the Republican president out there um, uh, extolling the virtues of torture once again in a way that uh, would have seemed remarkable during the 2008 campaign when both uh, John McCain and, and Senator Obama um, were saying that we needed to kind of move on from it. Um, uh, it's, I think, pretty clear that this is, uh, this is simply a, a partisan attempt uh, to make sure that the public isn't exposed to the idea that torture doesn't work, right? Which polling data remarkably shows most people haven't even heard that, uh, that statement. They haven't heard that argument. Is there any chance, you think, um, given this opposition, that the report may eventually be released, or is it— now a foregone conclusion that it won't. Well, so no, there are there are there are four copies that are apparently being returned, all from intelligence agencies, basically the FBI, two copies from the CIA, um, uh, and uh, the Director of National Intelligence's copy. But there are three copies that are still out there, um, outside of the Senate's copies. Right. Um, one is with President Obama's National Archives presidential records. That can't be released by law, I think, until 2028. Um, but that one's uh, safe for now. Um, uh, then there are two others um, that are being held pursuant to court preservation orders because they might be important um, to cases, one from the military commissions and one from the, the habeas cases. Um, so those will still be out there. Um, uh, but, you know, it's obviously very difficult um, to get um, any uh, record like this declassified. It took four years just to get that executive summary out under President Obama. Um, uh, so it's a, a long, long struggle. And, um, you know, I think, you know, one key point that you mentioned at the outset is we want the agencies to read this so that um, uh, they learn from it and, uh, and so that it never happens again. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange tweeted, Trump threatened by resistance, CIA alliance, gives CIA concessions from prosecuting WikiLeaks to hiding torture. Your response? Um, well, I don't think, you know, Trump needed to, to, to make concessions. Uh, you know, his, his statements about torture seem, you know, sort of crazy when we think back to the bipartisan consensus against it, um, uh, at earlier times. Um, but, you know, he may be crazy like a fox here. The, the polling data, um, since the middle of the Bush administration shows consistently, um, two things. One, that the public is unfamiliar with the idea that torture doesn't work. And second, that evangelicals strongly support torture, not because they think it works, but because they think it's justified punishment. And there, when you understand that, you understand the kind of evil genius of Trump's uh, campaign statement um, that, sure, it works, and even if it doesn't work, they deserved it anyway. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
Yesterday, I told you about Donald Trump's disgraceful phone call with Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte. We went through the transcript yesterday of this call, which was released. And in that call, Donald Trump congratulated and commended Duterte for the Philippines barbaric extrajudicial killings of suspected drug users and drug dealers in a sort of depraved vigilante justice of sorts. Donald Trump saying to President Duterte, keep up the good work. You were doing an amazing job. We talked about that yesterday. I also mentioned yesterday that during the call, Donald Trump, in one of these efforts to brag about you know the military power of the U.S. and the great intel that he gets, Trump said to Duterte, hey, we've got two nuclear submarines in uh, Korean waters uh, near North Korea. And I pointed this out yesterday, saying that may not be something that we actually want the um, uh, that, that we want made public. Right. Donald Trump saying during this phone call to President Duterte, quote, we have two submarines, the best in the world. We have two nuclear submarines, not that we want to use them at all. I've never seen anything like like they are, but we don't have to use this. But Kim could be crazy. So we will see what happens. So what was the reaction from the Pentagon? Pentagon officials are reportedly in total disbelief and shock that Donald Trump casually mentioned this during a phone call with Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte. Three different Department of Defense officials spoke to BuzzFeed and they explained, you know, people in the government aren't supposed to talk about submarines like this. Sometimes uh, even the people on the submarines don't know exactly where we are, depending on your your level of, of security clearance. You, there's no guarantee that even as someone on one of these submarines, you would know exactly where you are. The movement of these sub submarines is something that's crucial to the success of U.S. naval operations and national security. And Donald Trump casually says to Rodrigo, as he refers to him, hey, we've got two nukes, nuclear subs right in Korean waters there. I think what's happening is that Donald Trump is starting to get a bit laxed when it comes to handling classified information. Because I'll say he's been having these briefings since he won the nomination last summer. Yeah. And when you have a guy who built a brand off of grandiosity and braggadocio, I don't think he can <laughs> help himself even now that he's president. I think he genuinely can't help himself. I, I think that I, I don't know how calculated it is. I think the guy just can't keep his mouth shut. And these officials that BuzzFeed spoke to said, you know, aircraft carriers are noticeable just from flying over. So we don't really keep secret the location of aircraft carriers. They're easy to spot. Airplanes are taking off of them. Airplanes are landing on them. N submarines are underwater. That's sort of the point of a submarine, that it's not visible from from the air or from the surface of the water, particularly nuclear submarines. And that's that's kind of the entire point. We don't want people to detect them. And people are also pointing out uh, astutely, I might add, that China is in the process of developing new submarine detection technology. Now that China knows that we've got two nuclear submarines in Korean waters, this is a great opportunity for them to test out some of that new technology. Uh, so this this is it's bragging, it's irrational, it's haphazard and it's dangerous and it's a risk to national security. I mean, when, if I say to you, Pat, do you feel safer now that Donald Trump revealed the location of nuclear subs to Rodrigo Duterte. Do, does that make you feel like, oh, wow, he's really taking national security seriously now? Well, he may be revealing where our nuclear submarines are, and he may be telling the Russians what our plans are to fight ISIS. But at least he didn't use the wrong laptop yeah. uh, like Hillary Clinton did. Of course, that's something. Yeah. And, and he didn't have apparently a, 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 a private email server. Oh, OK. Um, Donald Trump, I, I was thinking about Trump's campaign proclamations that he is not going to be so stupid as to uh, reveal 
any of our military strategy when it comes to ISIS, when it comes to North Korea. He's not going to do that. It's becoming clear that he wasn't not revealing it during the campaign because of some ability to keep classified things classified and keep secrets. He genuinely had no plan because as we're quickly finding out, almost as soon as he finds anything out, he's revealing it. So, John, uh, last weekend uh, into uh, I guess into the end of uh, last week, we saw the um, Donald Trump's first foreign trip, and uh, it ended with a meeting of the G7 um, through which uh, we saw a lot of very strange, um, I guess, physical manifestations of some problems that uh, Donald Trump was having with uh, some of our oldest allies um, uh, uh, in from Europe. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, of, of some handshakes that seem to have gone awry, um, some shoving that was going on. I mean, before we get to uh, the comments that uh, Angela Merkel made of following Donald Trump's trip, lay out for us what what would normally be an agenda for the president of the United States when going and meeting with the G7 uh, nations? Well, that's a very good question. I think you begin with the concept that there's nothing normal about Donald Trump. And this is this should have been an incredibly easy trip for him. It didn't have to be hard at all. Uh, expectations for Donald Trump in Europe are so low that if he simply came in and said hello, shook a few hands, and, and did nothing else, the impression of him would have risen. Um, it, it was almost impossible to do damage to his, his approval rating, if you will, among Europeans, right. uh, because it's already so low. Um, and so he didn't have to rise to the standard of a traditional American president. A traditional American president, of course, so almost anybody else, Republican or Democrat, would try to come and establish a, a, a unique balance, uh, that of being the dominant player in a lot of military measures and a lot of economic measures, but not a jerk. And for Americans, that's always the balance. you got to strike, right? You, you know, you are the representative of the country that has a lot of power, that has a lot of importance and value to the alliance, but you don't want to come in and be so pushy, so uh, over the top that people that you need, leaders that you're going to need for international coalitions, both military and economic, uh, folks that you're going to need in diplomatic endeavors, feel put off or feel that you're not a good partner. That's right, what uh, any American president does. I want to just, 
I want to, before we get to what, you know, how he did on that accord, I, I want to just expand on this because, you know, regard, I mean, what, what strikes me is that regardless of, of what possible formulation one, an individual could have as to where America fits in the world. Right. I mean, regardless yeah. of whether or not you are you have a a conservative or a liberal perspective or an internationalist or an isolationist perspective, the the agenda, I mean, as you're expressing it, seems to me to be fairly consistent, which is that you want to go and meet with these people and put yourself in the best position to influence them in the future, regardless of what your agenda is, right? I mean, and this is just sort of, of like, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, and it, it seems obvious, but I think you know, to a certain extent, um, there, that it is not necessarily something that's embraced by the broad swath of America now. That you go and there is no value in being antagonistic. For the sake of being antagonistic, I mean, this it it seems somewhat rudimentary, but I think people forget that, like, regardless of what the agenda is, if you want to be totally isolationist, if you want to um, totally uh, dominate uh, these countries, if you want to intervene, if you want to hang back, if you want them uh, to to contribute more money to whatever it is, you want to have a relationship where you can influence them in some fashion, right? Not, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean this it, is it, not complicated stuff. It is not even diplomacy. Diplomacy requires, you know, some skill, some knowledge, and that this is just basic human relations. If you're putting a rock band together, you may be the front man. You may be the singer, and you may be the center of attention, but you still want to be decent enough to the bass player and the drummer and the keyboard player that they're working with you, right? Even if you're a jerk, you at least want that. Now, what the equivalent in that metaphor, perhaps not a perfect one, uh, is Donald Trump went there and he literally told everybody that, A, they're rotten players and he doesn't want them in the band. Uh, And if they are going to be in the band, they have to pay him even though he's getting the advantage of their presence. It was a bizarre and crudely dysfunctional presence. You, couldn't have, you actually couldn't have done it worse. And I'll give you a, a very simple example. You mentioned some of the physical manifestations uh, and, of course, shoving aside the prime minister of Montenegro, uh, a country with which, you know, it's a small country, but one that's coming into... Uh, the Alliance is an important player for a variety of reasons because of its location. And, I mean, just to be so dismissive, that's bad. The handshake with Macron was, you know, a, an absurd sort of standoff, a silly situation there. But the thing that may have been most telling was when they're, you know, down in Sicily. And remember, these we're talking about some different things here. We're talking about right. NATO stuff and some G7. But when they were down in Sicily... Um, they always take a walk around dinner time at these events, whether they're in the Bavarian Alps or on some island off Italy. You know, the, the concept is 
that they get out and they physically kind of walk along. It's done to some extent for the photographers, to some extent for image, but it's also a place where the leaders are a little bit away from all the aides and they have a chance to interact with one another. So they did it in Sicily. And all the other leaders, no matter what their age, no matter what their circumstance, they all walked, except for Trump, who waited behind until a golf cart was brought up so he could be driven the, the 700 yards or wherever they went. And he loses that opportunity to just even be human enough with these people that he's walking. I mean, it, yeah. I got to imagine it's just simply he just didn't have the stamina uh, to make it. But it's it, it, it and I would imagine the problem is as much uh, metaphorical as it as it is literal. Uh, uh, you know, if if he was a situation where he had some type of interpersonal skills where he didn't have this sense of having to prove himself as an individual, as opposed to like, you know, you show up, you're president of the United States. Like he seems to have like a fundamental misapprehension as to what role he's playing. I mean, he is for better, for worse. And I would argue for worse, uh, representative of this country. And he seems to think it works in a different way. Well, you're the dominant person in the world, and you have an inferiority complex. It's a bizarre circumstance. Do you mean to tell me you've been trying to live up to my standards? It all makes sense now. The misplaced aggression, the shirking of responsibilities, all classic signs of an inferiority complex. I had no idea my superior abilities were affecting your psyche so strongly. Take the rest of the day off. Huge specter that we're kind of uh, trying to survive under and that's nuclear war and that's a whole other story here both the obama administration and increasingly trump are uh, radically increasing that danger uh, this the threat of the uh, particular of of the new developments is captured uh, very effectively in the best simple monitor of the state of the world established at the beginning of the nuclear age by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. I'm sure you all know about this, but the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists regularly brings together a, a group of uh, scientists, uh, political analysts, others, very serious people, to try to give some kind of estimate of what the situation of the world is. The question is, how close are we to termination of the species? And they have a clock, the doomsday clock. When it hits midnight, we're finished. Uh, end of the human species and much else. And the question every year is, how far is the minute hand from midnight? Well, in, at the beginning, in 1947, be, beginning of the nuclear age, it was placed at seven minutes to midnight. Uh, it's been moving up and back ever since. The closest it's come to midnight was 1953, 
1953, uh, the United States and Russia uh, both exploded hydrogen bombs, which are extremely serious threat to survival. Uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles were all be being developed. Uh, uh, this, in fact, was the first serious threat to the security of the United States. There's interesting story behind that, but I'll put it aside unless there's time to talk about it. But then it came to two minutes to midnight, and it's been moving up and back since. Uh, two years ago, 2014, I think it was, the uh, uh, analysts uh, took into account for the first time something that had been ignored, uh, the fact that the nuclear age, uh, the beginning of the nuclear age, coincided with the beginning of a new geological epoch, uh, the so-called Anthropocene. There's been some debate about the epoch in which human activity is uh, drastically affecting the general environment. Uh, there's been debate about its inception, but the World Geological Organization has recently determined that it's about the same time as the beginning of the nuclear age. So we're in these two eras in which the uh, possibility of human survival is very much at stake. And with us, everything else too, of course, living, all living, most living things, which are already under very severe threat. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, I think it was 2014, the bulletin began to take that into account and moved the minute hand up to three minutes to midnight, uh, where it remained last year. A couple of, about a week into Trump's term, uh, the clock was moved again to two and a half minutes to midnight. That's the closest it's been since 1953. Uh, and that means uh, extermination of the species is very much in uh, very much an open question. Uh, I don't want to say it's solely the impact of uh, the Republican Party. Obviously, that's false. But they certainly are in the lead uh, in uh, openly uh, advocating and working for uh, destruction of the human species. I agree that's a very outrageous statement. Uh, so I therefore simply suggest that you take a look at the facts and uh, see if uh, it has any merit or if it just uh, should be bitterly condemned. That's up to you. In my view, the facts are pretty clear. At a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. 
So recently, obviously, Donald Trump was in Bahrain as part of his uh, overall foreign policy trip. And guess what happened right afterwards? Well, uh, having the Post reports, days after President Donald Trump praised U.S. ties with Bahrain and vowed to mend any strain in the country's relationship, the Gulf state launched a violent security raid that led to the death of one protester and dozens of arrests. Hmm. That's curious timing. I wonder why they decided to do it right after Trump came in and said hello. What did Trump tell them that led them to believe that they could now murder protesters? Let's find out. Bahrain's suppression of human rights and violent put-down of protests has created tensions with the U.S. in the past. Former President Barack Obama's administration advocated for reforms and restricted some arms sales. Now, look, Obama, I to me, had not done nearly enough on this count. We still deal with these dictatorial governments in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and all the others. We still sell them arms. Obama just tweaked that a little bit so that they wouldn't murder as many protesters in the streets, let alone targeting the Shiites in their country. Trump comes in and goes, don't worry about it, man. Do whatever the hell you want. In fact, here, I'll give you his quote. He said, our countries have a wonderful relationship together, but there's been a little strain. But there won't be strain with this administration. So uh, he gave him the green light. He said, don't worry, our arms sales will not be connected to your human rights record at all anymore. Let me give you more details. In late March, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson decided to waive human rights conditions on the sale of F-16 fighter jets to Bahrain. So all we done was, hey, you're going to get the F-16s and you're going to get to kill people. Don't worry. And don't worry, you will remain the dictator of Bahrain. But we're just saying, hey, just be a little careful in how many people you oppress and murder while keeping your reign and you'll still get the F-16s. But it's small conditions. Rex Tillerson and Trump come in, they're like, no conditions, murder anyone you like. I got it, you're called king, you're a dictator, it's fine. I just want to make money and I want, and I don't mind you doing that anyway. Killing Shiites, what do I care? Kill whoever the hell you like. King Hamad bin Isa al-Khalifa, what happened to the whole thing? I I don't like Muslims and we got to make sure that they're dangerous, don't come into the country until we figure out what's going on, right? But all of a sudden you're bound to every... Uh, Muslim king out there. Oh, you know, King uh, Hamad bin Asha al-Khalifa, do anything you like. Okay, Human Rights Watch, Watch issued a statement following Tuesday's raid in Bahrain, saying that the timing of the operation two days after Trump's friendly meeting can, quote, hardly be a coincidence. Uh, and this is not the only uh, area where he has empowered uh, dictators. During Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia last weekend, he praised a Saudi airstrike campaign in Yemen that has killed Thousands of civilians. He praised it and complimented Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, for doing, quote, a tremendous job. Al-Sisi took over in a coup, which, of course, Donald Trump doesn't know, uh, and has oppressed his people uh, and used considerable force uh, to do that and has imprisoned uh, people who are against him. Either Trump doesn't know that or more likely he does know it and thinks not that it's okay but that it's a tremendous job. So if you're a dictator anywhere in the world, Donald Trump is here and he's got your back. If you think this is what America's about, okay. That's not what all the rest of us sign up for. We thought America was a shining city on a hill. We didn't want a goon out there going all throughout the world, empowering dictators to take the gloves off and do whatever they want to protesters or drug users or anything along those lines. And he's just given them the green light. Have at it, Hoss. 
kill and oppress anyone you like. It sickens me that he's our representative. So sickening. Three people carried out terrorist attacks in London on Saturday night. A van rammed pedestrians on London Bridge, stopped. Three men left the van and went to Borough Market. I was there not long ago, around New Year's, and these three men started stabbing people. Seven people were killed. Other than the three attackers, roughly 50 people were injured. The three suspects were wearing fake explosive vests shot dead by police. Wearing the fake vest suggests that they wanted to ultimately be shot dead by police. I don't think anybody will be surprised at the source of radicalization here. Home Secretary Amber Rudd said that, quote, we are confident about the fact that they were radical Islamist terrorists, the way they were inspired. And we need to find out more about where this radicalization came from. So what happens after one of these attacks? The same, the same predictable things, candlelight vigils and prayers of solidarity with London, which is fine, of course, as well as statements that we will not be divided by the attack. Then it gets a little more split. You start to see from some the memes about terror has no religion and we are all one people and a hesitation to talk about Islam. Or if you talk about Islam, you have to talk about how all religions are equally to blame for terror, which just isn't true. Any sensible person realizes that. But there needs to be a serious conversation. And I am not talking about a serious conversation where we just criticize Muslims at large. I am talking specifically a conversation about Saudi Arabia and Wahhabism. And I know you might say, but David, Saudi Arabia and ISIS, they don't like each other. What does Saudi Arabia have to do with any specific attack in a Western country for which ISIS is mostly claiming responsibility? Well, it has a lot to do with it because Saudi Arabia pours money into cities like London. And that money does two things. One, the money buys influence. Like, for example, just days prior to this terrorist attack in London, it was reported that the UK government inquiry into the role of Saudi funding in uh, Saudi money in funding terrorism was likely to be shelved. Then, case in point, Jeremy Corbyn claims that Theresa May, the prime minister, is suppressing this report about Saudi funding of extremists. So, what does that mean? Well, Saudi Arabia by pouring money into Western nations, including the United States, where a major, major arms deal was just done with the Trump administration, is going to predispose these Western nations not to take an aggressive approach against Saudi Arabia. But the other way that money has an impact is that Saudi money is used in Europe, in the West to build ultra conservative mosques. And those are incubators of the ultra right wing extremist interpretation of Islam that Saudi Arabian Wahhabism dictates. That is the model of Islam from the seventh century, which leads to a religious theocracy in Saudi Arabia that publicly beheads people for punishment. And there is total and utter subjugation of women where women being able to drive without male permission is considered some big advancement. The US, the UK, 
have a relationship with Saudi Arabia that is really, really good for arms manufacturers and oil companies and their shareholders, but is an immoral one that is having a depraved and shameful influence on Western society. So it's all well and good that we're not going to be divided and we're not going to go out and harass or attack random Muslims on the street. Both would be outrageous. But this pretend game of never truly standing up to Saudi Arabia is BS. And by the way, it's not just the US and the UK. The UN has put Saudi Arabia on the Human Rights Commission. How laughable is that? And it also gives cover to countries like Iran. Iran said yesterday that the London attacks were a quote, wake up call and urged Western states to go after ideological and financial sources of terrorism. Uh, in a thinly veiled reference to Saudi Arabia. This makes every Western nation that is friendly with Saudi Arabia look like the hypocrites that they are. Now, as far as you and I should as, as far as how you and I should behave in the context of these attacks in Western cities, these are uh, are horrific atrocities. But don't forget that in large numbers, fortunately, terrorists are not hugely successful. They kill a comparatively small number of people. It doesn't make these events any less tragic, but we need to not kowtow to these incidents by totally upending society. That's the important message. It's not about, oh, nothing to see here. There's no problem whatsoever. No, there are specific problems that need to be addressed. But in terms of drastically altering our day to day lives because of this, I, I know the whole point is to make us afraid and it works. It works because now you're wondering, hey, something going to happen at the supermarket or at the train station or at this concert or on that bridge or tourist attraction. But you have to not change your day to day activity as a result of this. Churchill once said that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, and that may well be how the Chinese view Donald Trump. And this may actually be aiding his foreign policy, at least for now. Fred Kaplan, War Stories columnist for Slate, and as close listeners will already know, Brooks' husband, says that Trump's unpredictability bears some resemblance to the madman theory, a strategy employed by Richard Nixon during the Vietnam War. Shortly after Richard Nixon became president and there were peace talks going on in Paris about the Vietnam War, he told Henry Kissinger, listen, Henry, go to Paris and tell them that this guy Nixon is crazy. He's obsessed with communism. When he gets angry, we can't control him. And you know, he has the finger on the nuclear button. And he said, Ho Chi Minh himself will come begging for peace in two or three days. So this was a bluff based on his own reputation for being erratic, maybe even paranoid. He tried to use this as leverage in the Paris peace talks, but the other side didn't buy it because even Nixon to Ho Chi Minh 
wasn't that off his rocker. Right. It didn't work. <laughs> the North Vietnamese didn't believe it. You know, Nixon had been around for a long time, and regardless of his other foibles and eccentricities, he'd shown no sign of being crazy in that regard. Nixon wasn't really exactly a madman. Some people have said that Trump is benefiting from exactly the kind of uncertainty that Nixon was trying to cultivate. How so? My guess is that Trump has never heard of the madman theory. I don't think that what he's doing is strategically thought out. But in the eyes of many people, including foreign leaders, he seems to be genuinely erratic, unpredictable. And so the irony is that maybe this is actually having some effect, the kind of effect that Nixon hoped would work on North Vietnam. But for real, there are some signs that China is putting a little bit of pressure on North Korea. North Korea, maybe Russia are thinking, we don't know what this guy is going to do. Maybe we should be a little cautious. So let's just say that Trump is the accidental beneficiary of uncertainty along madman theory lines. You say that this benefit does not last forever. For example, let's take Syria. Trump launches 59 cruise missiles at an airbase in Syria. What happened the very next day? Syria launched an airstrike on a neighboring village from planes taking off from that very airbase. More than that, Trump didn't follow up. There haven't been more attacks. There hasn't been the opening of a diplomatic avenue. Trump didn't follow up because he doesn't even know that you need to follow up. Nixon at least had a strategy. It was based on a flawed premise. But if it had worked, he knew what to do afterward. You know, there was a nuclear strategist in the early 60s named Herman Kahn, very voluble character. And he put it this way. You know, the game of highway chicken where two cars zoom toward each other and they play a game of who's going to veer off the road first. Rebel without a cause, James Dean. That's right. So Herman Kahn said, well, imagine that one of these drivers very visibly unscrews the steering wheel from the dashboard and throws it out the window thereby forcing the other driver to pull off the road because that driver can't pull off. And so the other actor is forced to be a rational player. Donald Trump is the guy who's thrown the steering wheel out the window, possibly without even knowing what a steering wheel does, <laughs> thereby forcing China or whatever to be rational. Now, the problem is this. The entire Kim family, including its latest scion, Kim Jong-un, they've been playing this game for a long, long time. They're kind of masters at it. And Kim Jong-un, he's interested in one thing, the survival of his regime. He's been doing this, and his father and grandfather did this by playing larger powers off one another. And he's been doing it with the rational knowledge that these guys really aren't going to attack me. Kim Jong-un knows this. So his question, the question that's going through his mind and the mind of the president of China is, does this guy Donald Trump understand the rules of the game by which we've all been playing these years? Maybe he doesn't, and maybe, therefore, North Korea has to be less provocative, China has to do more to bring them under control. Again, this might work for a little while, but not for very long. In the meantime, what happens with our allies? They're looking and they're saying, this guy, I don't know what he's up to, Therefore, I'd better be making alternative arrangements for my security. In the case of countries like 
the Baltic, small countries near the Russian border. Maybe I need to start carving out a deal with Russia. Countries in the Pacific, well, gee, I need to start making trade arrangements with China. Our influence and power comes in large part from our guaranteeing security to allies, from being reliable. If we start acting according to a madman theory, we're going to lose the trust of others. They're going to go elsewhere. We're going to become less powerful. Fred, I want to ask you about trajectory. One possibility, I guess, if the scenario is as you've described, is that the president will suffer a string of diplomatic and military failures, more or less paralleling his track record thus far legislatively. Another possibility is that this game of chicken puts him in a position where he is cornered and realizes that the world is calling his bluff, then something really bad happens. That's the dangerous thing about bluffs. The other guy calls it, and then you have a choice to make. He has been tweeting, we will ask China to bring the North Koreans under their control. If they can't do it, we will. Exclamation point. USA. This quite correctly makes a lot of people nervous and not just the people that he's trying to make nervous. Now, it's interesting. The people in his administration have been sending kind of counter messages. James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, he's said things like, we will work with our allies. And everybody in the region realizes, okay, whew, because the allies aren't going to go for this at all. H.R. McMaster, its national security advisor, said the other day, we hope to apply as much pressure as we can short of war. That's a signal to the allies mainly. But at the same time, it's a signal to the adversaries that Trump is trying to influence. And is it a signal to the president himself? This is what really has to be said. He watches a lot of television. Anytime you see one of his officials on television saying something, you should keep in mind that he is saying it as much to President Trump as to the American people. That's why the messages are so mixed. His advisors are lobbying the president through the medium of television. And by the way, foreign leaders are lobbying him too. One thing that any foreign leader has now realized simply by watching is that if you sit down with this guy and you treat him with respect, you can gain some influence. I mean, look at President Xi, the president of China. A few weeks ago, Donald Trump said that he was raping the United States through his trade deals. Now he says, this guy Xi is a terrific fellow. And so Xi tells him, oh, you know, there's only so much influence I have over North Korea. And by the way, you know, Korea, that used to be part of China. And Trump repeats this in an interview with Fox, and the people in South Korea go nuts because this is kind of an old Chinese myth, which is designed to delegitimize the sovereignty of South Korea. And everybody in Asia must now be thinking, in the next conversation, is Xi going to tell Trump why China has rightful ownership over the entire South China Sea? And is that going to have an influence on U.S. policy? We've discussed the game of chicken and madmen. I think the scariest way of looking at this at all may be just ad hoc. A president of the United States and his administration just kind of making it up as they go along. Yeah, I think that is what's going on. Even some of his most cherished campaign principles. For example, saying that first day I'm going to call China a currency manipulator. Then he says, well, it turns out, gee, who knew that they're not really manipulating currency? 
I'm going to get rid of this Iran nuclear deal, the worst deal ever negotiated. Secretary Tillerson submits his required report the other day saying that Iran has abided by all the terms of the nuclear deal. So, yeah, we should probably hang on to it. NAFTA. That's another one. And he's now proposing some modest changes to NAFTA. Healthcare. Yeah, well, it turns out healthcare is a lot more complicated than anybody knew. <laughs> some issues are difficult. Some are even intractable. Some of these deals are actually not bad compared with the alternative. Maybe he'll gain wisdom from this over the next couple of years. Maybe not. We heard clips today starting with Intercepted discussing the possibilities that lie ahead when an administration is built on lies. Democracy Now! discussed the possibility of the Trump White House burying the 2014 Senate report on CIA torture. The David Pakman Show told us about the Pentagon's reaction to Trump casually discussing submarine movements with a foreign president. The Majority Report discussed Trump's odd overall diplomatic approach. Democracy Now! spoke with Noam Chomsky about how, between the nuclear age and the age of climate change, the GOP may be considered one of the most dangerous organizations in the world. The Young Turks highlighted the fact that all humanitarian strings have been removed from U.S. arms sales, giving a green light to dictators and despots. The David Pakman Show talked about Saudi Arabia's connection to terrorism and the ridiculous relationship we maintain with them. And finally, we just heard on the media explain that Trump may be playing out Nixon's madman theory of foreign policy better than Nixon ever did. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Ariel. I'm a listener from Memphis, and I'm calling in response to Alan from Connecticut, and he's wondering about how the younger generation feels about the allegations of Trump's involvement with Russia. And while I think it's fair to say that we do have a different perspective than those who, for instance, grew up during the Cold War, I think we're all still pretty turned off by that, basically just because of Russia's atrocious human rights record. And so we see it as being a very distasteful entanglement, but probably for different reasons. So anyway, that's just my thoughts. And thanks for all of the work you do. It's really appreciated. Bye. Hi, this is Megan from Seattle, and I am calling in response to Alan from Connecticut, um, asking about a younger person's political view of Russia. I just finished my first year of college, so I'm pretty young. And uh, I definitely don't think I have the same gut reaction when hearing about political ties to Russia as older people do. I definitely, you know, perceive problems, um, <laughs> you know, the major problems with this. Um, but it definitely comes from a more intellectual perspective from, you know, what I've learned in history class. They've learned about the Cold War from a historical-looking-back perspective. Um, you know, and I definitely just grow up with a vaguely negative perspective of Russia politically, but it's not, definitely not as strong or as gut-wrenching as, um, as older people. So, yeah, this is just one younger person's take on it, but thanks for the show. I really appreciate it. 
Hey, Jay. This is Will from Georgia. I just got done listening to uh, your podcast about what was happening in Kansas and all that kind of stuff. And then I heard the voicemail at the end. I was talking about the draft Bernie movement. The first time I ever heard of that, I had assumed that it was about drafting Bernie to become the next president or to run for president again. And uh, the position that the person who left the voicemail was a bit more reasonable than I had thought. But I'm still very skeptical about it because I am generally skeptical about third parties, especially given you know the history of the United States. But I did want to call to address a thing that I hear a lot when people do talk about third parties, and that is the uh, formation of the Republican Party as an example of a successful third party gaining power and rising to national prominence. The Republican Party, I would argue, is not necessarily like a one of those like what we envision of a third party, you know, like a scrappy third party that comes in and takes over. It was a deliberate formation of a couple different parties that had formed, namely the Free Soilers and also uh, the Whigs, who were the establishment second party, who got together in order to fight an actual scrappy third party being the know-nothings. Uh, you can check my facts a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that that's how it went, was that the uh, the Whig party gave their party infrastructure to basically the Free Soilers and a couple other constituencies and abolitionists within uh, Northern interests, and then formed the Republican Party. And that required a huge power vacuum. The Whigs had completely fallen apart by 1854 when the Republican Party formed. Um, and I just don't think that we're necessarily in that kind of power vacuum where we have a, a super powerful party and then a party that is utterly and totally inept. The Democrats are in a bad place, but I don't think that they are in a place that the Whigs were in 1854. But those are just my thoughts. Um, if anybody has something else that they would like to say to counter that, that'd be pretty cool. I'm perfectly willing to reassess my opinion. Love the show. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, uh, as one of the eldest millennials, uh, I, I just want to say that I agree with the callers we heard from today on Russia. Basically, yeah, I have sketchy feelings about Russia, too. I'm sure there's some residual Cold War propaganda that got into my head. But in addition, you know, what you hear in modern day, you know, post-Cold War is still not all that great. And so uh, I, I still have those sort of sketchy feelings towards uh, you know, Russia, the government, not so much the people, uh, but, you know, Russia, the government, sort of sketchy feelings. But almost certainly not really that similar to the way uh, someone would feel about it if they grew up having to hide under their desk from an attack from Russia. Secondly, I wanted to chime in just a little bit with some information I think might be helpful on the discussion of, you know, third parties, uh, you know, a third party blooming from the rubble of the Democratic Party. That is, I think, what some people have in mind. I, I liked the perspective that this caller gave and, and agree, basically, that, yeah, the Democrats are not in good shape right now. Uh, it would be strange to argue otherwise, but I agree. I don't think it's on the verge of collapse. 
and here's why. I already thought this before, but I read an interesting article today that sort of, uh, you know, gave a little bit more meat on the bones uh, to this idea that basically the Democratic Party is not about to collapse because there are a lot of people who totally, totally support it and love what it stands for. And so if you tried to create a third party that was everything the Democratic Party is except better and less corrupted by corporate influence, well, you're only going to get a small portion of those sort of rank-and-file Democratic voters to go along with that idea because a lot of them don't see the problem. They don't understand why you're even doing what you're doing because they think the Democratic Party is doing just fine generally speaking, and, and it's just that the Republicans are so bad and the, you know, that they've rigged it with gerrymandering or voter suppression or whatever, and that that explains all of the reason why the Democrats have been losing instead of saying, like I do, that that explains some of the reason why the Democrats have been losing. So just as a, for instance, someone came across my consciousness on Twitter who unironically had in his Twitter profile Democrat, period, coalition of the ascendant, period. And, you know, I hadn't heard anyone say that in years, and I had only really been reminded of that phrase because that's exactly what Thomas Frank points to and makes fun of in the book Listen Liberal that helps explain how the party was blind to so much of its weaknesses and how that led to its eventual and, you know, current downfall. And for those old enough to get this reference, I, that guy's Twitter profile was making me wonder, is he also working on building that bridge to the 21st century too? Like, really, at this point in history, you're going to hang on to the coalition of the ascendant catchphrase about the Democrats? That, that's like, it blew my mind. Uh, so it, that's why it's stuck there. But I got a little bit more clarity on this uh, from an article I read today. It's a Vox article titled, The Most Profound Gap Between Clinton and Sanders Supporters Wasn't About Policy. So to just read a couple of paragraphs from this, it says, Clinton supporters were fundamentally happy with the United States of America, the American political system, and the trajectory for people like themselves within it. Sanders supporters, by contrast, were not, and Clinton's various leftward feints on policy could not address that gap. That difference makes it much harder to bridge a divide, since it's hard to split the difference around the question of whether or not establishment politics is fundamentally corrupt. A left-wing economic message can be co-opted by more moderate politicians and have its rough edges sanded off in a pragmatic pursuit of electoral victory, but it doesn't address the fundamental divide, which is less about concrete policies than about abstract ideas like corruption in politics." End quote. And that, I think, really is at the core of it. There are a lot of people who do not see the Democratic Party as corrupt. They see it as basically functioning the way they want it to. And I think they have a fundamental misunderstanding of what a lot of us mean when we say corrupt. Uh, you know, because accusations that went on all during the primary would lead one to think that Every, you know, all the Bernie supporters think that Hillary Clinton and all of her supporters or, all, you know, any politician like her is like literally taking bribes or they're literally forming their policy based on what corporations tell them to do. And that's where the corruption is. And that is not 
what I mean, at least, at all. So to explain what I mean by corruption, here's a little story. This is bizarre but true, but several years ago I had lunch with three libertarian economics professors, you know, university professors. And uh, so, you know, I was trying to hold my own, kind of talking to them about economics and libertarianism, and the Koch brothers came up. I, I can't remember who brought it up, probably me, but, I, you know, I think I just asked, what do you guys think of the Koch brothers? And they said, oh, we love the Koch brothers. They're so great. Uh, you know, we, we we love everything they stand for, and they're funding our school of economics within this university. They, you know, they gave so much money uh, to us and they, they really help us do what, you know, we're trying to do. And I, I pointed out sort of clumsily, like, don't you see the corrupting impact of that? And they said, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. Like, they just provided the money. They didn't say what we should talk about or anything like that. We just talk about what we want to talk about. We like our libertarian, neoliberal economics policies, and it just so happens that the money to fund our unit is coming from the Koch brothers, but they don't have any influence. And if I had been able to make a more coherent argument in that moment, what I wish I had said was, no, that's not what I mean. I don't mean that they're telling you what to say or that they're influencing the kind of economics you teach. The corrupting influence is that because they're funding your school, all three of you are libertarian economics professors, and that wouldn't be the case if either your funding were coming from somewhere else, or the Koch brothers had a different vision of the kind of economics they wanted taught. If they're funding the school, they would have influence to say, hey, Let's get some different people in here. Not that they're going to try to tell you to do something differently, but you were chosen because of who the funders are. So at that particular school, if you go through their economics course, no matter what professor you have, you're going to be taught essentially nothing but this libertarian, neoliberal economic theory. And as Richard Wolff says, that's like holding a class on world religions and only talking about Southern Baptist Christians. Yeah, that should be discussed. It should be part of the discussion, but it shouldn't monopolize it. So, you know, Clinton said at one point that receiving donations wouldn't get her to change her mind, but it would get her to hear you out. And so I think Clinton was saying that as a defense against this accusation of corruption. And a lot of Clinton supporters would hear that as perfectly legitimate. But what I hear and what a lot of people hear is, so Clinton just said that you can buy your way into a conversation with her. And all politicians, no matter how pure as the driven snow they may be, no politician has an infinite amount of time to hear from everyone. So if people with a lot of money can donate to you and get your ear for any amount of time, that means that you are not going to be hearing from someone else who may have taken that slot. So I don't have to think that Clinton is taking money and giving corporations exactly what they want in exchange for that money in order to think that there is a corrupting influence. The problem is that her perspective is being changed by the money. The people who are allowed near her 
are being changed by the money. The influences she is allowed to hear, the perspectives she is able to get, is changed by the money, and that's what's corrupting. Just like a student going through that school who thinks, hey, their teacher is telling me exactly what that teacher thinks is valuable to hear, not even realizing how much is being left out because of the corrupting influence of the money at the top. So as that article lays out, you know, the Clinton people seem to think that it is so self-evident that the country is doing pretty well, things are going pretty well, Democrats are doing all right, and, you know, things are, are going nicely under Obama, that they can't even see the argument that the Sanders people are making about corruption and, and the breakdown of the system. They think those people just are out of their minds. And the Sanders people, on the other side, see the system as so self-evidently corrupt and broken that they assume, well, the Clinton people must also be able to see what I can see, so I guess they must just like it that way, or they see it as unfixable, or whatever, but either way, they are in the way. They need to get on board with fixing the system, and they are refusing to, and so they are frustrated by that, obviously. So, Clinton people don't understand the underlying argument of Sanders people, and so they stress ever more vehemently, including an Obama-Clinton supporter, uh, you know, listener of mine, who said this to me by email within the last two weeks, stressing Clinton's policies were broadly the same as Sanders, with only minor tweaks, and so, like, those minor tweaks are not worth going nuclear over. But to stress the policy similarities reveals a total misunderstanding that the problem goes much deeper than that. So those are the people who won't ever even think about leaving the Democratic Party to join a third insurgent party that is trying to, you know, to de-corrupt the Democrats because they don't even see the problem. You know, they like what they see and they are loyal to it because for some reason they seem to be blind to the types of underlying problems of corruption that those who would break off and you know, form another party, that they see that as their central cause and the other people can't even see it. So as the caller was sort of pointing out, I think the party just has to be even more broken than it already is, because it has too many supporters right now to collapse under its own weight. It'll keep staggering along. And so unfortunately, that's the position we find ourselves in. If you want to read it for yourself, I highly recommend that article. Again, it was on Vox, titled The Most Profound Gap Between Clinton and Sanders Supporters Wasn't About Policy. So as always, keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Maybe start by telling any podcast newbies that there is an easy-to-use best-of-left smartphone app to get them started. Also, please keep leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher to help others find the show. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found on the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Uh.
See you